The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're going to go back to Thessalonians this morning, okay? We've been out for quite a while. Uh, Right now they're at a ceasefire in the Middle East, so we'll take a ceasefire from Israel and deal with Thessalonians, okay? We're in chapter 3 this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 15. Well, not really, okay? We're going to be looking at those verses next week. This morning we're going to be kind of doing an introduction to those verses because the subject they deal with is work. Work. So Paul writes to them to address the problem that there's people in the midst of the congregation that aren't working. They just refuse to work. And this is really the third time that he's done this, so he comes across pretty strong in these verses. Now in this short epistle, it's only three chapters, Paul deals with some pretty deep theological subject. He deals with the return of the Lord and fiery judgment. He deals with the day of the Lord. He talks about the coming rebellion. He talks about the man of lawlessness. He talks about the restrainer. And he talks about the power of Satan. Then he deals with election. And then he talks about the power of prayer. So many grandiose theological truths. And then in the last section, before he closes, he says this, get a job. Like, what? It's almost like startling. What are, you're going through all this great stuff, now you go get a job? Yeah, that's really important. And the majority of this closing chapter deals with work. So to me, I think this must be an important subject if Paul spends all this time in this little epistle dealing with the fact of work. And I think you're familiar that we live in a culture that has a very skewed view of work. I mean, when people talk about work, do you ever hear them talk about it in a positive sense? You hear people talk about how much I don't do at work. You know, how much I got away with. Well, I went in today, didn't do anything. You know, and they brag about that kind of stuff. And it, it, that's just kind of a sad thing. We act like work really cramps our lifestyle. Like we would have a lot more fun if we didn't have to do that, okay? We see it as mercenary and simply a way to pay our debts or to fund our lifestyle. U.S. News and World Report said 70% of employed people in the U.S. don't like their jobs. Wow, that's a lot of people. 90% of the 70 don't feel like getting up in the morning and going to their jobs. That'd be a horrible place to be in, really, you know? Because unhappy people are unproductive people. Time Magazine said the average worker wastes many hours per week. It causes $100 billion of drain on the American economy to pay people for what they don't do. So how much of your paycheck is unearned? I, I was in the Navy for five years and saw a lot of people, lazy people in the Navy. I thought, can't get much worse than it was. I got out of the Navy, I went to civil service. Okay, I'm like, you want to talk about the government pays these people to do absolutely nothing all day long. And they don't try to encourage them to work. They don't, you know, they don't try to get them to do anything. It just seems like that's what they're supposed to do, nothing. I'm sitting there, I'm looking around, I'm thinking, what is happening here, you know? I had a guy that would go in the, tra- in the bathroom, and he had a, in the trash, he'd keep his bottle of whiskey. He'd dig it out, pull out the trash, take a hit, and put it back. And They knew it, and no one cared, you know? It's just, that's how things were. 
I was probably the only one at my bench all day long, and that's because I had a cassette player there, and I would listen to messages all day, you know, so they were happy, though, because I'm sitting at my bench working, you know, and that's, it's just, it's really, government is really, really sad, you know, but I think we are a, a nation that's consumed with leisure and personal pleasure and little else, and people ask, how will it benefit me? That seems to be the only question many people ask. Now, you think this problem is isolated to unbelievers? No, hopefully you know better than that, all right? It's been said that the average American teenager thinks that Manuel Labor is the president of Mexico. <laughs> we have really become an overindulgent, self-seeking, lazy people looking for a free ride. And boy, the government will help you to do that, okay? We desperately need to understand, I think, what the Bible says about work. And the first thing we need to understand is that work is not part of the curse. I think many people think that. Well, that's part of the curse. We have to work. No. Let's go back before the curse. Genesis 2.15. Yahweh God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So in Genesis, we see that the first man, Adam, was created by God, then brought into Eden, the cosmic mountain, the temple of God, Yahweh's dwelling place. And the verbs in this passage are work and keep, in the Hebrews, avad and shamar, respectively, and both are active verbs. Avad means to work in any sense, to serve, to till, to enslave, and shamar means to safeguard, to preserve, to care for, to protect. So even in this perfect environment, we have work to do. It was necessary. It's necessary for man's good that he works. You know, the ideal world is not one where you don't have anything to do and you just lay around and do nothing all day. That would be so boring, I think. It's a world that includes meaningful labor, things that have to be done. And I think God created man with a mission to do that work. As a matter of fact, God has commanded us to work. Now, Exodus 20, verse 9, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And this is, you know what's coming next, right? It's about the Sabbath. You know, the Sabbath day is holy. You're not, but I think people miss this verse here. Because this is a command. Six days you are to labor. God designed man to work, to do things, all right? Look what the Proverbs say. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Now that's excluding preachers, of course, right? <laughs> in all toil there is profit. There is profit in labor and doing things. Proverbs 18.9. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys He's not getting anything done. He's not accomplishing things. G.K. Beale writes this about the text in Thessalonians. He said, Christians in various sectors of workplace too often undervalue the work they do, failing to see it as vitally related to their relationship to Christ and the advancement of His kingdom. Paul elaborates in these verses that the performance of work to the best of one's ability is a vital part of living out one's faith. And I think that's right, and we'll talk about that. Look what Paul teaches elsewhere about our jobs. And like I said, this morning we're going to look at some other texts and we'll get into the text of Thessalonians next week. But I kind of want to lay some groundwork before we get in there. And you'll see next week, Paul is really uses some strong language to the Thessalonians. Ephesians 6.5 says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Some translations say slaves here. That's a pretty accurate translation. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Now, as we look at the text in Ephesians, 
It's important that we understand that although this text was written to slaves and masters, it applies to all of us. Because you could take the employee, employer, and put it in the same thing. It's the same idea. It's the same kind of relationship. Someone's a boss, someone's not. All right? And if you don't think there's slavery today, you don't know much about the military because military are indentured slaves. They sign away. I'll give you five years of my life. Tell me where to go. Tell me what to eat, what to wear, where to go. Everything, okay? It's indentured servitude. All right? And so that implies to us, and the whole, again, the employee's employer thing. And I think this text shows how those who are filled with the Spirit, who subject themselves to one another in the fear of Christ, should relate to one another in the workplace. I mean, this is an important thing, knowing how to live your Christian life in the workplace, because you're going to spend a lot of time there. Your relationship to Christ should transform your relationships at work. Have you ever thought about the slogan, Good help is hard to find. How'd that get started? I'll give you a wild hint. I bet it got started because good help's hard to find. <laughs> you think? I mean, it should it be that way? It's, it's hard to find, I think, basically, because people are self-centered and self-serving, and they just don't want to work. You know, they want money, but they don't want to work for it. <clears throat> but these things really shouldn't be true for believers. And so Paul gives them instructions as to the Christian's work ethic. He says, <coughs> excuse me, bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. So they're to be living in fear and trembling of their masters. Is that what this is talking about? I think that's how a lot of people look at this. Well, you should be living in fear and trembling of your masters. I don't know, slaves might have been, but I don't think so. I don't think we're to live in terror of our boss. And we can see this if we look at a parallel text in Colossians. It says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So that's who we're to fear. So you have to ask yourself the question, are you more afraid of what your boss thinks of you or what Christ thinks of your labor? See, Paul commands us to live in fear of Christ. And the word fear here refers to the attitude of reverence, towards the Lord. We desperately, I think in our day, need to recover a sense of awe and reverence for Yahweh. We need to begin to view Him in the infinite majesty that belongs to Him, who's the Creator and Supreme Sovereign of the universe. And we have to understand there is an infinite gap in worth and dignity between Yahweh the Creator and man the creature. And sometimes we want to just dissolve that gap and, you know, why did God do this? Like, we're questioning Him. We're, bossed, we're telling Him what He should do, how He should do things. The fear of Yahweh is a heartfelt recognition of that gap, that He's the Creator and I'm the creature. Now, can you imagine how important this statement was to the slaves of Paul's day? I mean, a slave might very well fear his master, for the master had power literally of life and death, as well as the power to do anything he wanted with that slave. He could sell him, he could get rid of him, hand him over to somebody else. But Paul tells the believing slave not to fear the master or to live with an attitude that the earthly master was sovereign over his life. Instead, he was to be fearing the Lord. Now, how do we do this in our own setting? Well, I think it demands that we consciously see that we're serving the, lo- the sovereign Lord, not man. And when we go to work, we see we're serving Christ, whatever our vocation might be. We, might, <clears throat> we must also have, I think, an intense desire not just to please the Lord who called us, but to serve Him in that, to, to be a servant for Him. Now he says, 
we were to do this with a sincere heart. This prepositional phrase modifies the verb to obey. The term rendered sincere here has the nuance of with singleness of mind, conscientiousness, along with liberality. It means that you give it your all with undivided attention and effort, basically saying, don't waste time on your job. Do it to the best of your ability. And he says, as you would to Christ. Now, this adverbial phrase indicates who was the slave's ultimate master. The Ephesians were not instructed to obey their masters and Christ, but to obey their masters in obedience to Christ. And the fundamental obedience is therefore not to the master, but to Christ, the master. Now, Paul drives home through repetition the centrality of our relationship to Yeshua as Lord. He just uses Lord, Lord, all in this text. In 6.5, he says, as you would Christ. In 6.6, he says, as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. 6.7, he says, as to the Lord. 6.8, receive back from the Lord. And then 6.9, their master and yours in heaven. So he's just stressing Christ being the Lord. And you really can't miss it as a believer. Your relationship with Yeshua as Lord is the primary, or should be the primary, governing factor of your life. Christ must be the center of all we think and all we do. Your relationship with Christ should make you the very best employee or employer. And the key concept is, concept is you don't work primarily for your employer, you work primarily for Christ who sees every motive and every action. And this is the emphasis, I think, of the entire Bible. The first and greatest commandment is, He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second commandment is love our neighbor as ourself, right? But the Lord doesn't put that first. It's deliberately second because the primary thing in life, the foundation of everything, is that you put God first in your life. And I guess we all have to ask ourselves, are we doing that? Is that primary for us? I mean, and the way I think we can tell if we're doing this or not is look at your schedule from the last week, and does it reflect that? Did you spend time with the Lord? Did you spend time in His Word? You can't begin to have a right perspective towards your job or your boss or your employees until you have a right perspective with the Lord. As Paul makes it clear, your work primarily, you work primarily for Him, as he puts it in the parallel text, is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Colossians 3.24 so man was created to work, and all work is sacred duty, okay? 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now this should tell us that there's no distinction between secular and sacred. You can't say, well, this is my business world, or this is my employment world, and this is my Christian world. Because Paul just blows that out of the water with what he's just said. Whatever you do, you're to do it for the glory of God. Your employment has to be unto Christ. And he's saying this, even in your work, even in your, the most menial task you do, whatever it be, if it's a good work, if it's an honest work, it's to be done for Christ. Now there's a term that's thrown around a lot in Christian circles. Full-time Christian service. You've heard that, right? What does that mean? Full-time Christian service. It's an expression, I think, of convenience for those maybe missionaries or pastors or whatever, but it's not accurate and it's not scriptural, okay? This person's in full-time Christian service. I'm serving the Lord part-time. Does that sound good? Not really, right? Okay? Paul's saying that we are all 
in full-time service to the Lord. We're all to be working as unto Christ, whatever it is we're doing. So you're in full-time ministry all the time, ministering for the glory of Christ, whatever you do. It's no different for you to do your job to the glory of God than it is for anybody else to do something for the glory of God if they're supposedly in this full-time Christian service, all right? Me spending time preparing a message and you doing your job, there's not a distinction there. One's sacred and one's secular. That's a false dichotomy that people have created. Paul put it this way in Colossians. Whatever you do, whatever it is, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Bottom line, a housewife who's cooking dinner should cook it with the idea the Lord's showing up tonight for dinner. Okay? A teacher is to educate children. Doctors and nurses are to treat patients. Solicitors to help clients. Accountants to audit books. Secretaries to type letters. And shop assistants to serve the public. Builders who build. They're to do it all for the glory of God as unto Him. It all has to do with your attitude. I Really, that's the key. If you're doing your work as to the Lord... Whatever you do for God's glory, that's the difference. That's sacred service. And we really need to remove this line that we've drawn between the secular and the sacred. Because that just, I think it puts us like, my job doesn't matter, but their job really does matter. I think your attitude when you get up in the morning should be, i got to go work for Christ today. Whatever it is you're doing. And Stanley joking earlier says, what if you don't have a job? Everybody has jobs, okay? Hopefully there's stuff you do at home. And you, know, and you do it for the glory of God. It doesn't have to be a paid job. We all have, or we're going to go out of our minds if we don't, okay? You know, the construction worker says, I'm going to go serve him with hammer and nails. Or maybe a nail gun nowadays, right? I'm going to go serve him in the classroom where I teach, or I'm going to serve him where I fix cars, or whatever it is I'm doing. I'm going to do it while I'm traveling around, selling stuff to people. Whatever my job I'm not working for men. I'm serving Christ. That's the thing. And, and the world is watching us, people. You know, especially if you let somebody know you're a Christian, they're focusing on you because they want to see something they can drag you down for. Because that makes them feel better. You see, you're not such a good person, so that makes me feel a little bit better. So you've got to watch out for that. And they're watching us as we work. Martin Luther said this, The role of the shopkeeper and the role of the housewife are sacred as a role of, as, are as sacred as the role of clergy and priest in terms of its relationship and reference to God. I think he's right on there. William Tyndale wrote, There's a difference betwixt washing dishes and preaching the Word of God, but as touching pleasing God, there's no difference at all. So every job, every task is of spiritual value because it's integrated into the life of a Christian. And it becomes the arena in which the Christian literally lives out his spiritual existence. What's happening on the job for you is the single greatest articulation of Christianity that you will ever have in your lifetime. Because you get with people on your job, you, wouldn't, you have interaction with them that you don't have with so many other people. But you, most of us do interact with other people on our job. Okay, we're with other people, we talk to other people, they're watching us, we're either helping them or they're helping us, and they're examining us. And I think the most hindering force to the conversion of a lot of people is Christians. Because where do most people come in contact with Christians? It's at work. And I think that can be the most effective place for evangelism. I was led to Christ by a co-worker. I respected this guy, he handed me a track, if I didn't 
know and respect him, I probably wouldn't even have looked at it. But I did like him, so I stopped and I read the thing. And it just, I came under great conviction and then went back to him to talk to him about, okay, what does this even mean? And got further instructions. But that's, that's what the workplace is like. You get close to people, you know, on the job. Matthew 5.16 says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Where are you most before men? It's at work. William Perkins said this of work. He said, the true end of our lives is to do service to God by serving men. And that's the thing. Our job should be in some form of service. You know, that's, hopefully that's what the job's for. You're, you're there to help meet the needs of others, provide something that others need. Now, I'm sure there's some people thinking, well, that's easy for you to say because you don't have an earthly boss. I do. <laughs> do you know my wife? I have an earthly boss, okay? <laughs> or some people just say, well, my boss, just, he really isn't fair. He's a jerk. I hate obeying him. Well, Peter says this, Servants, be subject to your own masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Even to those that are abusive, even to those that are unreasonable, we are to submit ourselves. We are to you know, treat them with, with respect. And, and I'll tell you what, you can make a difference in somebody's life if you treat them, even unreasonable people. I had an experience in the Navy where... The division I was with, I was in a trailer in a big hangar where that's where we, I ran first lieutenant. And I'm out there and I'm on the phone doing business, Navy business, and the chief, the senior chief, comes busting in the trailer screaming at me, get off that phone, I'm trying to use the phone. And I kind of shouted back, which not a good thing to do, okay. <laughs> but he blew that off. But boy, about two weeks later, I got transferred to his division. And he was just a cantankerous old person. You'd have, you know, I'd walk in the morning, hi, chief, and he'd be doing, eating something. He'd spit it in his hand, and he'd bark at me, and then put it back in his mouth. I mean, he just was. But I said, you know, I said, Lord, you know, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So I went in there every day, good morning, chief. He'd yeah. I went, morning, chief. And then I'd say, good morning, Curtis, how are you? I'm fine, chief, thanks for asking. And I carried on. He started, and eventually he started smiling, then he started laughing, and then... Eventually, we became good friends, but it took time, you know, but I mean, it was kind of my fault we started off on the wrong foot because just that initial reaction, like, I'm doing my job. Why are you yelling at me for doing my job, you know? But so you, you have to win your boss over, and I really believe that. I believe when a man's ways please the Lord, that he'll make even his enemies to be at peace with him, and you can live that out, but you have to sometimes be very patient and very long-suffering to, to make it happen, Okay. Yeah, you work for yourself, so you'll never get over your boss. <laughs> Titus 2, 9 and 10 says, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, I want you to see something important in this text here. What's the motive here for our obedience and our submission to our employer? It said, he says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is, this is amazing when you really look at the language and what's going on here, okay? Because he's talking about the doctrine of God. He's talking about the message of redemption, the gospel. 
When you look at the gospel, you see the beauty of it. You see the splendor of the gospel. It's perfection. That a sinful man, a man born in sin, separated from God, headed for eternal damnation, when he sees the love of God, God has provided for him in that state because God has chosen him and pulled him out and made him part of the family. God provided a substitute for us, Yeshua the God-man, who died for our sin. And by placing our faith in Christ, we can be eternally forgiven and delivered. Through the gospel, sinful man can become a child of God for all eternity. We see the beauty of the gospel. But then this text says that we can adorn, we can beautify, we can make more attractive the doctrine of God, our Savior, by being good employees. That's that's kind of mind-blowing, people. Our daily conduct on the job can decorate, can beautify the perfection of the gospel. That tells you how important to Paul the whole idea of labor and work is. That's how important our conduct is on the job. St. Francis said, the most powerful effect of evangelism takes place on the job as you live out your Christianity in the face of unbelievers. I think that's true. And we learn from historical records that Christian slaves brought a higher price in the Roman Empire than heathen slaves. Word got, word got out there. This guy's a Christian. Pay a little bit more for him. Because they were better slaves because they took Paul's word to heart and they lived it out. So they were willing to pay more for those Christians. Imagine how the book of Ephesians could transform the worldview of a Christian slave. You know, from Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, the slave would marvel at the fact that God chose him from eternity past, sent Yeshua to die for his sins on Calvary. And from these chapters, then he comes into chapter 2 and he learns that we're the joint Jews and Gentiles are becoming one in Christ, part of the glorious church of God. And he just goes over all these blessings that are theirs and the establishment of the kingdom of God. And they're like, and then he gets into telling them, okay, here's how you need to live. This is, you know, you're probably not too happy to be a slave, but you're Christ's slave. That's what's more important. So live it out. Live that out. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 6, not by way of eye service as men people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, you don't just work when your boss is looking or your boss is there. And you've all seen that on the job. You've all seen employees. They're sitting around not doing anything until they see the boss coming. Now, that's not true in civil service because you don't care if the boss is there or not, okay? Because nobody cares, you know? Just sit around, do your thing, and the boss walks right by, and you're like, wow, they don't, they don't get it. <laughs> but for the most, <laughs> most jobs, if they have a decent... We're excluding government from all this, okay? Because they've reinvented not working, so... But for most people, you have a boss, the boss is there to make sure you do your job, okay? And he's not going to get paid if he's not doing his job by keeping you working, all right? But some people, they just slap, they want to slack off, the boss is not around. One researcher said that only one-fourth of employees give their best on the job, and that around 20% of the average worker's time is wasted. I'd say it's probably more than that. William McDonald said this, the Christian standard of performance should not vary according to the geographical location of the foreman. <laughs> I agree with that, okay? In other words, you're there to do the job. It doesn't matter. God's watching you, and that's, you know, he's the one who's called you to be a servant, you know? He says, as people pleasers. You know, I think we all struggle with this at times, the sin of you know, trying to please men rather than please God. In a crude kind of way, this kind of gives... Uh, the position of sovereignty to someone else, you know, when you're putting them above God. 
instead of realizing that promotion comes from the Lord. It's a restoring to whatever techniques or smooth words or deceitful actions might be necessary to persuade an earthly boss or grant favor. In other words, you do things just, again, to be a people pleaser. You don't have to worry about that if you're serving the Lord. You know, God is in control of all these people. We just have to please Him. In in the 26 times the Lord is mentioned in the book of Ephesians, it consistently has a reference to Christ rather than to the Father, except twice it's used of human masters. Believers are to render service to their new Lord, who is Yahweh the Christ. So the Christian slave submits inwardly as well as outwardly to his earthly master. The Christian slave obeys his earthly master as an expression of his submission to the Lord. Verse 80 says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or if he's free. All right, from the Lord. That, that's emphatic in the Greek in this text. The ultimate reward comes from God, not from your employer, because you are ultimately serving Christ, not the employer. This is crucial knowledge if we're going to live a quality Christian life at work. The whole attitude called for is important in our day. If our dependence is unruly, if it's unduly on a company, you know, you're trusting in something else, you're going to be really let down because companies fail, whatever they are, you know, and I'm not, I think you should do your best to get involved in a company that provides benefits and retirement plans and all that, but still, you, you don't trust them. You've got to, your trust has to be in the Lord because anything can fail. We need to learn to live with the view that the Lord is ultimately our provider. And we need to be, I think, aware of that that fact when we're on the job and not worry so much about how we can please our boss in the sense of we're pleasing Christ for doing that. Our boss is going to be really happy with our work. Now, there's no doubt that some of the slaves were disobedient and they brought shame to the name and the testimony of Christ because of their disrespect toward their master. And that's why Paul wrote to Timothy and instructed him to tell the slaves in his congregation, he says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. And why? So that the name of God and the teachings may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. So he says, you count your boss worthy of all honor. Honor means respect and service. They're to work to serve the needs of their employer and not their self. In other words, don't let your work habits cause people to speak evil of God. Because if you say they're a Christian and you say, that's the laziest person, those Christians don't want to do their work, all right? The way you work relates to how people perceive God and biblical teaching. Now, if you can imagine what this was like in the first century, you're a slave in the assembly and you know, you're know you working for some master, and then you guys go to church together, and you're an elder in the church, and he's not, and so you know, you're know you the boss in the church, and you go back to work, and now he's the boss, and you're just doing what he tells you. It could have got complicated, and that's why I think he gives so, much, so many instructions to them about how they're to live their life in this time, all right? Because that would have been a, a strange situation, and there would have been some things you had to deal with there, okay? Ephesians chapter 6 tells us, Every job, every occupation, every work falls within the believer's line of a sacred duty. 
No such thing as a secular job for a Christian. No such thing as a secular anything because everything is to be done for the glory of God. Look at what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. So find enjoyment in your job. Okay? And then he says, this also I saw is from the Lord. So that's the key. We have to see work. Listen, your job, your work is a gift from God. I know too many people probably don't think of that, okay? I do, that's for sure. Now you think, a gift from God? How is a job a gift from God? Well, it's a gift from God because it's a means of providing value and meaning or fulfillment to life. You know, you have some purpose now. The sense of accomplishment, you know, doing something that is, is worthwhile. And I think we all know that. When you do a good job, you look back and you have this sense of accomplishment, the sense of, I've done something. Work is a gift from God because it prevents us from idleness, which is spiritually very dangerous. You know, I think the more and more people demand recreation and idle time, the more corrupt they become. Because the two go hand in hand. I think an escalating pornographic, sinful, wicked culture is sped on by its lack of commitment to work. You don't have to work. you got so much free time to do all kinds of stupid stuff. And almost every culture has its saying about idleness. The Romans said, by doing nothing, men learn to do evil. They're bored. They, you gotta, you know, the Jewish rabbis taught, he who does not teach his son a trade teaches him to be a thief. They put a high priority on work. So work is a gift from God because it's a means of providing for your needs of life. You know, God has given us work to do in a way in which we can gain wealth. I mean, that's how most people get their money is through their, their labor, okay? And that's so we can buy food to keep us alive. Work is a noble thing by which we sustain the necessities of life. And it's a gift from God because it's a means also of serving mankind. It's a means of serving humanity. Work is done... One of the most work is one of the most honorable and noble things that a Christian can do. Now, on the other hand, Scripture has a lot to say about lazy people. All right, Proverbs says, "The slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich." If you don't do anything, you don't have anything. You know that's the whole idea. Proverbs thirteen four: The soul of the sluggard craves; he gets nothing. In other words, man, he really wants that but he's too lazy to work, so he doesn't get it, all right? While the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. He, he has what he needs because he's out there working for it, getting it. Proverbs 20, verse 4, The sluggard does not plow in autumn. He will seek a harvest. Guess what? There's nothing there. You didn't plant anything, you're not going to harvest anything. And because of what the Bible teaches, I think most of the Jews honored labor and required the rabbis to have a trade. Most of the, the, the Jewish boys up to the age of 12 just worked at memorizing, and from 12 they'd go learn a trade, and then some of them would come back and continue their study of scriptures. But some Jews, they looked at work as a secular thing. They didn't understand the sacred duty of work, and they saw it merely as a common, menial sort of human second-class effort, whereas religious duties, that's first-class, that's the divine thing, that's the noble thing. And, you know, I, I really think that most Jews had a good value of work, but it was, it was sadly, it was the, the 
Jews in the upper area of the religious studies that just came to think, hey, we're up here serving God. These, other, these are just peons down here. And so they developed that attitude. But I don't think it was within most of Judaism. The Talmud, for example, has a very interesting prayer in it. Now, the Talmud is a collection of Jewish traditions and writings. But it has this prayer prayed by the scribes. A scribe was a person who devoted his whole life to studying the Scripture. That's all he did. He just studied the Scripture. He was supported by the Jewish community to do nothing but study the law so he could tell them what it was. This is a scribal prayer. And like I said, I think this just happened because you get in this position, you start thinking you're somebody. The scribe would pray this, I thank thee, O Lord my God, that thou hast given me lot, has given me my lot with those who sit in the house of learning and not those who sit at the street corners. For I am early to work, and they are early to work. I'm early to work on the words of the law, and they are early to work on things of no importance. So you get it, oh, yeah, they're doing something, but it doesn't matter. I mean, what I'm doing spiritually. I weary myself, and they weary themselves. I weary myself and profit thereby. They weary themselves to no profit. I run, and they run. I run toward life and the age to come, and they run toward the pit. So they just saw this division as secular and sacred. And Eusebius, one of the church fathers, really promoted this whole thing in the 4th century. Listen to what Eusebius wrote. He said, There are two ways of life given by the law of Christ to His church. One is above nature and beyond common human living, holy, permanently separate from the common customary life of man. It devotes itself to the service of God alone. Such is the perfect form of the Christian life. Then in the second paragraph he says this, and the other, the second more humble, more human, permits man to have minds for farming or trade or other secular interests. And a kind of secondary grade piety is attributed to them. So Eusebius saw that, you know, some, you're, a first class, you're a first class Christian if you're serving God and that's what you're doing full time. You're just giving it to Christ. But you're a second class Christian if you have some kind of secular employment, you know. Like I said, I don't think, I think this was just in the Jewer, Jewish upper echelon because the traditional Jews, they didn't, they didn't have this idea. They had a good attitude toward work. And we want to try to see what these different people thought about work because how did the Thessalonians get to the place where they didn't want to work? What was happening there? And there's, that's a big debate there. The attitude in the church, this attitude that uh, Eusebius came up with, this really changed during the Reformation because the Reformers had a very solid view of work. We already looked at what Luther said. He said, the role of the shopkeeper and the role of the housewife are a sacred, the role of the clergy and the priest in terms of relationship and reference to God. They saw all work as sacred. Now, for some reason, which Paul really doesn't tell us, some of the Thessalonians were refusing to work. And he, he like I said, he, this is the, the text we're going to look at is the third time he, had, he really chastises them for that but he's much more severe now but he's had to do it over and over so there's this problem there but we don't know what it is why are they not working he doesn't really tell us it may be because of the influence of their culture Thessalonica was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia and the Greeks despise manual labor they just you know you don't do that stuff that was for slaves that's how they felt Historians tell us that during this period, there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 60 million slaves. That made up about half of the population. 
And the philosopher Seneca told how the Roman Senate defeated a law proposing that slaves wear distinctive clothing. So they come up with this law, okay, let's, let's identify the slaves. Make sure they put on slave uniforms, that way we know who's who, and it'll make things easier. Why do you think they defeated that law? What would happen if they wore clothing to, to set them apart? Huh? They would find out how many slaves there were. Look, they'd be looking around, what the heck, everybody's a slave. You know, and then the slaves see, hey, look how powerful we are. We, there's more of us than them. So they said, no, 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 we don't want them to know that. Let's keep them wearing regular clothing. So, you know, smart move there, you know, by the government. Keep, keep people in line. Well, because the Romans were free, they considered work beneath their dignity. Slaves performed most of the work, including medical, teaching, domestic work, farming. While some decent relationships existed between slaves and their masters, it oftentimes was just very dehumanizing. And the slaves were considered just objects to be used and thrown away by their masters. They could put them to death if they wanted. They could sell them you know, to somebody else. A lot of them ended up in the sex traffic. That's just what they did. When the usefulness was over, they would sell them you know, into prostitution. So, the Thessalonians' wrong view of work could have been because they lived in a Greek world, and the Greeks believed that work was very demeaning. That, maybe that's why these people aren't working. In fact, they just thought it was di- work was beneath the dignity of free men. They said it was sordid. They said it was degrading. Homer, the famous Greek writer, said that the gods hated men, and the way they demonstrated their hatred was to invent work and punish men by making them work. Now, that's very different from what the Bible has to say, but that's the culture, okay? This kind of philosophy being existent at the time, it found its way into the lives of the people, and obviously guys become Christians, and they bring this into the church, and they're still holding on to this view, oh, works is beneath us, we're not going to do that. Maybe the Thessalonian attitude about work happened because somebody had come to Thessalonica, according to chapter 2, verse 2, and told them that they're in the day of the Lord. They're at the very end of the end times, and the coming is happening soon. And some of them were saying, look, if the Lord's coming soon, if we're in the day of the Lord, and the day of God's fury is about to fall on us, why do we need to go to work? And maybe some of them just, some of them just said, there's no point in working, it's all going to end soon. But some of them were spiritual, and they said, we got to evangelize. We've got to quit our jobs, and we just got to tell people, because the end is very near, the Lord's coming. So they made it you know, sound kind of spiritual. Again, Paul really doesn't tell us the reason people weren't working. So all we can do is speculate. And some think it may have been the Jewish influence that really elevated religious people to study the Scriptures and supported them for that. Others think it may have been the Gentile mentality that free men just don't work. But most scholars, and this is what's interesting, most scholars draw a connection between these non-working brothers and Paul's teaching about the coming of the Lord. And I think it's just because Paul's emphasis in this book, both books, is so strong on the coming of the Lord. They think they became so caught up with the idea the Lord's going to return any minute that we just quit working. We don't want to waste our time when the Lord's that near. We should be serving others. We should be trying to reach out you know, with the gospel. They had this eschatological end-time mentality that says, Yeshua is coming, we can't be doing work, we've got to be doing evangelism. Again, that sounds real spiritual, doesn't it? Um, 
I love the dispensational writers in this text. Uh, one of them, J. Hampton Keithley III, he's got a THM, and he writes this. He says, this is a sad illustration of either wrong interpretation or wrong application. By this, he's talking about the coming of the Lord. And so because the Lord's coming, they quit working. He's taking that view. So, okay, so he said it's a, it's a wrong interpretation or wrong application of biblical truth. The New Testament does teach the eminent, any moment, possibility of the return of the Savior for His church. It is eminent, but no one knows when. Okay, so he just stresses that fact that, okay, they don't know, so they're just, they're ready. Now, he's saying this of the first century believers. It was eminent to them. Okay? And he says, it could be today. And he's a contemporary writer, right? But it might not be. <laughs> it might not. As has been the case for hundreds of years. And what's interesting to me here is, like most dispensationalists, he views the second coming as eminent. Okay? Eminent means, according to Merriam-Weber Dictionary, they define eminent as ready to take place, happening soon. The New Testament saints fully expected the return of the Lord in their lifetime, yet the majority of believers today, some 2,000 years later, are still saying it's soon. Can the same event be eminent at two different periods of time separated by thousands of years? It just doesn't make sense. It can't be eminent if things that have to happen before it can happen, I mean, how is it eminent? You know, because I think most people will agree, well, you know, the temple has to be destroyed. Because the disciples connected the fall of the temple with the end of the age. They know that, but they don't see AD 70. That, that doesn't really count, I guess, okay? That destruction didn't count. So how can the destruction of the temple be eminent today when there is no temple to destroy? I talked to somebody last week, and he was telling me a friend of his, you know, who's dispensational, and he's saying, yes. The coming is eminent. And he asked him this. He said, what about the, doesn't have the temple have to be rebuilt? He goes, they got that already. They can have it built in two days. Like, what kind of a moron? How, how I mean, they have it, and they must have it built somewhere else. And they got a helicopter, and when this time is right, once they get rid of the mosque, they're going to fly it in and drop it, and boom. And then it's going to get destroyed right away, you know? I mean, it just people just don't think about these things. And, and the dispensationals are getting all excited because, you know, they... They bred a red heifer now, so we can do the, and they can, it's just all, it's really sad is what it is, okay, because they, they totally miss what the Bible says, project everything off in the future and still looking for it, and that's why so many people are freaking out about what's going on in Israel today. That's the really sad thing. There's a lot of scared people right now. So it's, you know, the coming of the Lord is not eminent for us, okay? This is It happened a couple thousand years ago. We don't really need to worry about that. Well, whatever the reason, there are people in the Thessalonian church who weren't working. They just refused to work. And Paul's on them and on them about it. And he doesn't tell us why. And, you know, and maybe he doesn't tell us why because it doesn't matter why they're not working. Because there's no good reason for not working. All right? Now, of course, I shouldn't say there's no good reason. If you're disabled, you can't work, okay, there's should be provision for that kind of stuff. But I don't think that's not what he's dealing with here. He's dealing with people in the church, able-bodied people who just refuse to work. And the problem with, is when they refuse to work, they still have to eat. So who's going to take care of them? Well, the burden falls on the church then. And Paul doesn't want that burden on the church. So he says, hey, look, if anybody doesn't work, he doesn't eat. That's God's cure for slothfulness, hunger. Well, the government has circumvented that. We'll take care of them. 
they don't have to work, we'll feed them. And then, of course, people just keep on remaining lazy. St. Francis said, the most powerful, effective evangelism takes place on the job as you live out your Christianity in the face of unbelievers. I think that's true because I think we get closer to people on the job than, you know, than our neighbors or anybody else. We're, we're working with them. They see us. They see how we handle situations. They see whether we are willing to work or whether we're coming up with excuses why we're not, we don't have to work. Vincent Chung wrote this, The passage forms the foundation, speaking of our text in Thessalonians, the passage forms the foundation for the matchless work ethic that Christians were famous for in the past. Christians were famous for a work ethic. That should be the case, okay? Because, again, people, we're called to be different than the world we live in. But I think today we've lost that. We've lost that idea, and we just, like, people don't see a distinction between the Christians. I don't think we're known to have that work ethic today, which is a very sad thing. Well, hopefully you see the importance of work and having a correct work ethic. If we really understand that we're doing this for the Lord, it changes our job. It transforms it, you know. We don't have to worry about the boss and what he's telling. We're doing this as under Christ, and you're going to have a great attitude about it, and you're going to enjoy your job, understanding that you're being productive. All right, well, what we're going to do is next week we're going to get into this text, hopefully just finish this text. I thought I'd be able to finish Thessalonians in two messages, but now it's going to take three because I, we had to divide this one up. But I had to set the groundwork, so we have to understand the, what the Bible says about work and how important it is. Next week, we'll look at the text itself. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Father, it's a subject we don't really talk about much, but the importance of our job, the importance of what we do and our doing is unto you. Father, I pray that the word of God would be embedded into our heart, Lord, and that you would use it to steer and guide us on the, at the workplace, Lord, that Christians would realize they're serving you whatever the job is they're doing. Help us to do it, Lord, as unto you. That, Father, we would literally adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us. Amen. Okay, questions, comments? Now they say that this country was built on the Protestant work ethic, um, which I think even unbelievers had that. They so they saw what Christians, the work ethic that they had. Right. And uh, that was sort of the standard. And uh, I don't know. It seems like we are losing that work ethic as Christian worldview is diminishing in our country. Very true. Well, our society is not, I mean, the young crowd today is not known for their labor. You know, I mean, it's like we're paying people today to go on YouTube and make comments on YouTube and do silly things and people are making money. We pay athletes an exorbitant amount of money to play a sport and... You know, the whole idea of work is just, you know, it's falling apart. You can't see things built like, you know, the Romans build the roads and they're still usable today. We build a road and two weeks later, we got them out there redoing the road. You know, I'm like, what's the deal here? Do we not know how to work or what? Again, I think one of the big problems is government's way too involved in too many things. and It doesn't, it doesn't produce too much, you know. Gary? Um, just... A reflection on the Jewish work ethic in the day, how the, some the Jewish slaves were even more uh, respected for ethic, work ethic or whatever. Um, could that be part of the reason why the Jewish community became so, in general, so successful? 
because you know, everything they did, they worked diligently as to uh, serving the Lord and become, you know. Successful when? Huh? Successful when? Well, they were hated for centuries because they owned the banks and the yeah, stuff like that. right. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know that our people. I mean, people today look at the Jews as successful because they have a work ethic. No. They look at them as crooks. <laughs> That's why they're successful. They're good at ripping people off, and you know. And and again, you wonder. Okay, how did that view come about? Mm-hmm. Well, because they're crooked. Okay, and they're trying to steal everybody's money, and they're trying to take over governments, and so yeah. So there's a. Uh, and again, there's no Jews today. Okay. We got to come up with. We got to come up with a name for these people. We could use a Trump slogan, I guess. And they're fake Jews. You got fake news and you got fake Jews. Okay. Talmudic. And, uh, <laughs> Talmudic Jews. Yeah. Got fake Republicans. They're definitely Talmudic Jews. They're not. They're not biblical Jews at all. And to Garrett's statement about being self-employed, every person he works for becomes his boss. Yeah. Well, that's true. You know, right. you say you're self-employed, but you know that someone else is paying you. Mm-hmm. My doctor does not get that concept, though. <laughs> I said, wait a minute, I'm paying you, I'm your boss, you know, do what I tell you to do. Yeah. Get that concept no, a lot of people don't get that concept. <laughs> True. I'm glad that I haven't heard, I've heard similar messages for <coughs> years when it was convenient for the preacher. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't hear this one years ago when I was working. so you're retired now so it's okay huh yeah you know we all have you know every housewife can say i don't have a job well you got plenty of work to do that's the thing you know i mean our society has so downgraded a woman's role in the home that it's you know you're just nothing if you're you're doing the most important thing in the world you're doing the biblical calling being home raising kids you know taking care of your husband that but our society has made it to the point of it's just and now our society is really destroying women because now they're all men who are women. The man of the year, I mean, the woman of the year was a man. The highest ranking woman is a man. They're all, all these top ranking women are men. So it's like, what are they trying to do? It's just, our society is really messed up, people. From Norm, my mother and father grew up in the Depression. They instilled in me the work ethic. From the day I could push a lawnmower or wash and dry dishes, I, we worked. I mowed grass for people until I was 16, got a work permit from Burger King to, to hunt, Burger Chef to, to what, to hurt tracking at, oh, something truck, tr- to trucking at 18. Even when I was laid off, I was embarrassed to go on unemployment and refused to. Sometimes my job was looking for work. My father taught me how to spend a dollar like it was a thousand. Till the day she, till the day she died, my mother would only chew half a stick of gum. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong; we enjoyed what we had to the mm-hmm. fullest, but we knew it was provided for by God. That's the problem mm-hmm. today, Norm. Is there's nothing being taught like that? The work ethic, you know, kids. I mean, okay, we were out of town for Thanksgiving. Went to relatives. One night, there's 16 people over for dinner. Dinner got done. Two people cleaned up. All the rest of them. Thanks. Walking out, we're sitting, talking, doing. And I'm like, I said to Kathy and I were the two cleaning up. I said, Kathy, what the heck is wrong with people today? How, you know, they come in 
like this food was provided by fairies. It just appeared there, okay? No one had to work and make it or anything. You just come and eat it, and then you just go about your business and don't worry about anything. It all, the fairies will come back and clean it all and put it all away. I just, you know, but there's just that today. It's like people don't, I don't know, they just don't feel the need to work. And I think that has to be taught. You know, kids today, they don't expect them to do anything. If you're not giving you a job, you know, you're, you're not helping that kid. You're hurting that kid, okay? Because I don't care what you do. If you're alive, you have to work to stay there. Mm -hmm. Things have to be done. Clothes have to be washed. Things have to, you know, food has to be made. Money has to be earned to provide place to live, all that stuff. But I don't know. Our culture is just, it's, it's a very sad thing because what's going to happen in a couple generations? And one of the reasons, I think one of the big reasons for this is the government. Mm -hmm. You don't have to work, they'll pay you. They just pay you money to do nothing. I'm like, well, that's not really good. Even today, we were at a restaurant and they were telling us, we just can't hire people. Nobody wants to work. And I'm like, how do they, I don't get, they must know a secret, because how do you live if you don't work? And they think the government, I didn't think the government was still giving away money, but I don't know, somebody, somebody's getting stuff It just... <laughs> Hope you feel better soon. Thanks. I appreciate that. I'm so used to being congested. It's like my allergies are... Hello, new follower here. Is there a system of theology I can study to be in line with what you teach? Ooh, system? I, don't... I understand now that premillennial dispensationalism is incorrect. Is there a name or theology for what we believe? Yes. It's called... The eschatology is called preterism, but if you, if you go on our website... We have thousands of messages on there, and you can pick a topic that you want to look at. Uh, I would suggest you go to, we have five messages called Brian Distinctives, and they're the distinctives of what this church believes. And you can look at those five messages and get an idea, but as far as theology, we have an eschatology section on the website. Go to there, and you can go through those messages. If you're looking for something specific, go to the um, search engine and type in what you're looking for. Our search engine is really good. You know... Last week, I probably got 10 people asking me questions, and I kept saying, go to the website, go to the web, go to the website. I wish I could have an automatic text to respond, go to the website. You know, because I know it's easier to just ask me, but, I, you know, I have a life, and I have other things I'm doing, too. So, you know, I get texts at night and text first thing in the morning, and I'm like, okay, I'm glad you're interested in this stuff, but please, there's so much work went into that website. I have a question. Usually, if you text me a question, I have to go to my website to figure out what I said. You know, it's not something that's fresh on my mind. So see if you still agree with it. Yeah, see, see if I still, I still believe that. So just go to the website uh, again. Video and listen on the website. There's text. You can just read the transcript. It's all right there. So some people were asking me this week, uh, where is the link for this study I did on the Jews and the references to DNA and stuff? It's all in the text. Okay, the links are there, the references are all there. It's all on the website. We just, you just have to go there. It's an audio form, you can just listen to it, or it's a video form. So we've done a lot of work for that website, so please use it. I think you'll be able to find so many answers to your questions on the website. Okay, what can you do if you're 81 years old, retired person, to honor the Lord? Brother, there's so many things you can do at 81. Just being out and showing people you made it to 81, you know, in our day and age is, is pretty significant. But, I, I, you know, there, there's a lot of volunteer things people can do. And you, you can do stuff from home, you know, that's volunteer, serving in, in different ways, making phone calls, help praying for people. 
you know. I mean, there's there's a lot of things. As long as you're breathing, God's not done with you, okay? So just figure out what you enjoy. And I think that's important important to do something you enjoy because nothing's worse than, you know. You, If you've been around here long, you figure out, I usually don't ask people to do something because I want people to see a need and just feel it. Hey, I can do that. Good, because then you, chances are you're going to really like what you're doing. If I ask you to do something, you just feel like, oh, I better do it because you asked me, and you don't like it. That's no, I, I don't, I don't like that at all. Now the other way around, my wife will ask you to do something. Okay, <laughs> she's not afraid to ask people to do something. I don't, I don't like that. I like, I like ministry to be filled by people who just, you know, see something and want to do it. Trying to refute preterism with the Bible is like trying to refute democracy with the Constitution. Okay, I think, yeah, the Bible, trying to refute preterism with the Bible, I think is absolute hopeless case. When we first started this church, I put up a website right away, because I had a friend who did web design, called him, can we start a website? Absolutely. I said, okay, I want a link on there, and I want the link to say, how to refute preterism with the scripture. And when you click on the link, it played the song Mission Impossible. <laughs> well, a lot of people got mad over that. I'm like, eh, I don't care if you're mad, you know, show me the scripture to refute what preterism has to say, because... You're not going to do it, you know. <laughs> Norm says, I love the Curtis Study Bible on BBC. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. It is it is basically a commentary on every book we've gone through already because I try to go verse by verse through the stuff so it's already up there. You know, people say, what do you think about Hebrews 8? It's on the website. Go look at it. Okay? You think I remember what I said on Hebrews 8? It was, I don't know, a long time ago, you know? So you'd be better... And again, it's funny because that's where I'd go to figure out, what did I say about this text? I don't remember everything. I don't remember a lot of things. <laughs> Good morning, brother. Good morning, my brother. I have some co-workers I reached out about the premillennial rapture, and now I know it's wrong. <laughs> what can I do or say to express current belief in preterism? I think it's, you know, I think at this time right now in our culture, Eschatology matters more than ever because of what's going on in Israel and because of all the wrong teaching and all the fear-mongering that's going on. Preterism mm -hmm. means more than anything. And I think we just need to... My, my way to deal with somebody is, is go to your co-worker, go to your friends, take your Bible, to open up to Matthew 16, 27 and 28, and say, what do you think this means? Ask a question to them and then let them scratch their head and say, what does that mean? You know, the Lord's going to return to some of those standing there? How would he do that? I mean, they're dead, you know. Just get them to think about stuff and then, you know, introduce them and talk about it. I think we're just too afraid, you know, people are going to reject us. People are going to, you know, I was I was joking with Robin Cindy this week. They're going to their relatives to have Thanksgiving. I said, look, have a little fun at the Thanksgiving table, you know, just give them a hard time. Say, do you guys all know that the Lord came back? I said, it'd be a good opportunity of conversation. Yeah, they laughed about that. Yeah, that would be... But I, you know, I'm not afraid to do it. I like stirring up stuff like that. I think it's kind of interesting. I get the looks like, why are you asking those questions? You got you to gotta ask questions to find out what people... Get them thinking, you know, if we're, if we're afraid to make people think. But that just, you know, you got to introduce it. Use a book or something. You know, Glenn's book is a great book to give somebody. Hey, you want to know something about eschatology? You know, you think the Lord's returning? This is a good... Glenn's book is not offensive. Mm -hmm. He's just basically sharing his testimony. Mm -hmm. It's really a really good way, I think, to get it out. 
Uh, someone says, me and my husband are 81 and 82 and still work three days a week and thankful. There are jobs out there. Check them out. There are jobs out there. And I know I often tell employers, you want to hire a good worker, hire a senior citizen. They'll show up on time. They'll be there every day. You hire a young kid, can't come in today. My favorite show's on or this or that. or You know, they're coming in late all the time. I'm like, no. Yeah. That was from Eric and Karen. Hey, guys, good to hear from you. He says, David, can you imagine if William Bradford and the Pilgrims had a modern-day work ethic? No, they'd be dead. They'd just be dead. Okay? The roots of the gospel of Christ would have never happened in America. Thanks for hosting us last week. Eric, Karen, it's great to meet you guys. I appreciate you coming. Hopefully you'll come back. Oh, someone's sending me something for sinuses. This is great for sinuses. You know, I'm willing to try anything. I really am one of those people. Great message today. There's so much that Christians today need to know about the history of the early church that can benefit them in their own lives. That That's true. There really is. I mean, appreciate your message. Thanks for removing the line of secular and sacred work. That gives me peace to... To enjoy what the Lord has put in my hand, Lori Miller. You're, you're, you know, when we're doing it for Christ, it's not secular and sacred. And, and the church has made that division. You know, it started early, but the church still for, forces that division today because they want to keep that dichotomy. I know the Bible. You're peons. You don't know anything. You just do what you're told. Okay, that way you can keep you under control and you keep you doing what they say. It's just it's such a false dichotomy. You know. And pastors have gotten to a place where they just cracks me up. You know, they, they think there's something. They think because I'm a pastor, I'm like, that's nothing. Okay, You're just someone who studies the Bible, hopefully, and teaches it to people. doesn't put you in a position above anybody else, you know. New listening from California. Another one. Well, thank you. There's a lot of people from California. Last week we heard from a lot of them. Thank you for your teachings. I've been praying to God, asking Him to guide me. To the real truth. Well, I'm mm -hmm. glad you landed here. Uh, mm -hmm. Please, like I said, take the time to go through our website. You'll find anything you want there. Uh, someone else says, imagine those meeting houses in the first century were often small gatherings as well. Mm -hmm. Love from Tim and Sandra. Tim and Sandra in California. <laughs> wow, we got something going on in California. Is there a revival happening in California? Are they leaving? All right. <laughs> run, all you Californians, run. Get rid of Newsom. All right. I think we're done. Let's, uh, we didn't do this last week, and we probably should have. We're going to close by singing Give Thanks. I know Thanksgiving's already over, but we can still be thankful. Okay. Do what? Let me say thanks to those of you watching us. I appreciate you watching. It's, it's good to hear from you. Thanks for texting in your questions. Uh, please, just get familiar with our website, folks, because there's a lot of stuff on there. And uh, if, you, if you're, especially if you're new here and you want to learn about where we're at, what we're teaching, what we believe, it's all on there, so go check it out. Thanks again for being here.